do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. You're listening to an interview where we are trying to answer the key question in regenerative agriculture, actually agriculture as a whole. What to plant where and why? An interview about watershed level thinking, computer power, GIS, advanced agroforestry systems, and of course, chestnuts. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. Before we get started, I've been recording these interviews next to my day job and I will definitely continue to do so and release about an episode a month. But at the same time, I would love to take this further, share more interviews. There are many more stories to share on investing in regenerative food and agriculture. More depth, improve the quality, maybe even doing some video series. So I started a Patreon community, which makes it easy to support creators like myself. If these podcasts have been of value to you, and if you have the means, I invite you to support me and make this happen. For more information, please find the link to my Patreon account in the description below. And now, without further ado, the interview. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm Koen van Seyn, and today I interview Russell Wallach of Terragenesis and the Bioregional Agroforestry Suitability Analysis, or short, BRASA. Welcome, Russell. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Excited. And before we dive into the big question of the day, what to plant where and why, mainly looking at trees, I would love to have a, a short uh, intro of you, what brings you to Region Ag, what brings you to food, and, and what brings you mostly to trees, and actually in your case, even more to chestnuts. Sure. So for me, it actually, it started out as I started to support myself and I guess have a little more agency in the world, maybe moving towards being an adult and starting to see kind of the, the patterns that I had grown up in of grocery shopping and what products to buy. And all of that was so wasteful that even if I ate everything, I was throwing away a lot. And that was around when I was 20 or so. And I just, maybe it was because I was a philosophy major, but I just kept asking why and kind of pursuing what was the root of that waste and started getting towards a place where I was seeing that we've designed our agricultural systems to have very little value. I mean, by definition, we commoditize so much of our agriculture that the thing coming from the land has very little value itself. And so then we've had to design a whole layer of how do we re-add value to these systems. And that's that's actually what ends up being a lot of the waste is the packaging or the branding that is used to add value back into some goods that we've commoditized. And so th- through that line of questioning in, in my early 20s, I started getting really interested in agriculture. How have we designed our agricultural systems and what did we design them for? And I don't come from a farming background. And so I was then just kind of trying to see every opportunity I could get and actually, I actually took a pretty non-traditional way, had quite a bit of student loan debt and 
literally in the U.S. could not find an affordable uh, a farming job opportunity that could pay my debt, and so I went went into um, clean tech and worked in energy efficiency and software for a few years before actually stumbling into your friend and colleague Ethan Solovyev. And through meeting Ethan and learning about the great work he was doing at the time with Appleseed Permaculture and TerraGenesis, I started apprenticing with he and his wife, Diami, who was then running Appleseed and started doing design work with them and installing trees. And through that process, started learning really about the need for perennial-based agriculture in our agricultural systems, especially when we consider a larger hole than a single plot of land, whole, W-H-O-L-E, whole, but start thinking at a watershed level and that there really aren't watersheds that only consist of annual crops. and There aren't really watersheds that have these large swaths of monocultures or even rotational monocultures. And so through that process and working with them and going back to school and getting a degree at the Conway School in Ecological Design, I, I just... I started to learn about the value of trees and landscapes and specific to chestnuts. What really caught me is being in the Northeast U.S. and thinking about what are the tree crops that actually have a role to play as a staple crop. You know, certainly we have tree crops here that I would say are a bit more specialty crops, you know, like apples and even cider, which have a lot of value. But that when we think about replacing some of these vast landscapes of corn or wheat, potatoes, that what, what grows on a tree that can actually serve the dietary role of some of those crops. And in the Northeastern context, it's largely about hazelnuts and chestnuts. And at this stage in the Northeast, with relation to different blight resistance and kind of the suitability of, of the production systems at this moment, chestnuts are a bit farther along. And so I got really excited about chestnuts as a flower crop, you know, in, in, Portuguese culture, Italian culture, French culture, they've been called bread tree for hundreds, if not thousands of years. The chestnut tree has been known as bread tree. Yeah. And I remember the podcast with the propagate guys, and I think we spent half an hour on chestnuts and they were calling it, it's like growing soy on a tree. There's so much nutrients coming off. Yeah. It's such a high value when done well, obviously, and blight resistant, et cetera. Yeah. And, but it's, it's almost like one of those magical trees that we every couple of years find and then it doesn't turn out to be magical. But in this case, it, it has a, a long history in some other parts of the world yeah. where it has been part of the staple diet for forever. And it's not a grain, it's actually a tree. Yeah, there's really a, a basically a temperate band that wraps around the world where there have been cultures who have used chestnuts as a staple crop for thousands of years, you know, from Japan through Korea, China, Turkey, Greece. Spain, France, Italy, all the way through the Eastern U.S. until the early 1900s. And I mean, we don't have to go into the details of why it disappeared in in the U.S. I, I can post a link on, on some some articles on that. But going, taking one step back and say, okay, we would love to have this back because we think, in terms of agroforestry, we need to plant a lot more trees. Let's plant the most useful one that we can also eat. Partly, mm-hmm. then the question becomes: I mean, you were mentioning it. It doesn't have to makes too much sense to just look on a plot of land. You started to look at a whole region, basically a whole watershed. That seems pretty daunting. Like figuring <laughs> out, okay, we're planting probably millions and millions of trees, if I'm, I'm maybe even billions of these trees. Well, well, how did that became a project, and how did that become what is Braza now, basically? 
Yeah, sure. So maybe so that I don't get too long-winded, I'll kind of give you the origin story, and and then maybe you can you can give me a question that points me towards uh, what's going to be most valuable for the conversation. Sure. And and the other thing is, I'll just caveat this. You know, it's it's a funny thing. What we've created in the past year is both extremely exciting, and we've had some really good kind of pat on the back affirmation from a lot of colleagues about what we've created. And I actually feel like it's pretty incomplete and that we have a long way to go in terms of what is possible, both in terms of the GIS technology and really the thinking that's being brought at the watershed level to enhance design. I think we need to explain first what GIS is. Yeah, sure. (laughs) So... GIS is, are, is a geographic information system. So the most common program you'll hear talked about is ArcGIS that came out of ESRI, but also Google Maps is really is a GIS system, it has a little less to offer to the average user, but it's a software system or a platform on which you can geolocate information. So for example, in Google Maps, every restaurant is geolocated. And so you can search and what Google Maps is doing is creating an optimized route between where you are and that restaurant, right? And that's based on information being associated with the location on the planet. And so you can also do that to create systems where you're bringing in other informational layers and doing analytics. So an analysis could be the model modeling the route between two places, but it could also be, for example, um, some of the heat maps you see on you know, some of these graphic demonstrations like on Vox, where you get a heat map, let's say in the U.S. of voter registration percentage in a state. That's a form of geographic information system. What's producing that? So the question I was asking that kind of launched Brasa was, where can I plant chestnuts? And land is very expensive in the Northeast U.S. Chestnuts don't produce revenue for quite a while, five to 10 years, really. And so as a young beginning farmer, it's a pretty big risk for me to buy land. Fresh out of student debt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still recovering from student debt. It's a pretty big risk to take on land with a delay towards revenue. And so I really wanted to make sure I was approaching that in an intelligent way. And so I started with asking, you know, what are the criteria for a parcel that's going to be suitable for chestnut production? And what we did with the Brasa team, which includes the TK Design Lab folks who share my office here in Massachusetts, is we started, we created an exclusionary process. So we took, okay, here is the Connecticut River watershed in Massachusetts, 1.7 million acres. And we said, what are the classifications of landscape that we know are not going to be chestnut suitable? So, for example, urban lands, for example, state forest or really any kind of preserved forest landscape, any water body. We're not going to plant our our farms in a body of water. And so in Massachusetts, and and it varies by location, but in Massachusetts, there is an available data layer. And this is true for the entire U.S. I'm less familiar with some of the other global data sets. But depending on your location, you may even have a data layer that applies a value to of land use to every you can think about it as a pixel on that map. So every... Like a little square. Yeah. Exactly. And how how so, big is that in terms of in, in Connecticut? What's the, the square size? Oh, that's a good question. Um, but it's not it's not gigantic, right? You can it's get... It's not gigantic. Pretty, I'm going to guess... I'm close gonna, to... 
Yeah. Oh, wow. If I recall correctly, it might be a 30 meter cell. Oh, wow. So 30 by 30 cool. meters. Yeah. And this is getting better, I can imagine, with, with a lot of new satellite technology and software trying to identify what actually making smaller pixels and what's in that smaller pixel. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, to maybe fast forward here, just to give some examples for listeners. So that was a nationally available data set. We were bootstrapping this entire process and trying to keep costs as low as possible, but still produce a valuable case study. So that was a free data set. We're also looking at some examples where we're going to need to do canopy analysis. So actually looking at a forest to evaluate the typology there. And in that case, we're actually going to take aerial imagery and do potentially even sub-meter cell size. So wow, a 900th of the cell size when we're looking at the square. So, and you can go even finer than that. It just depends if on you pay, obviously. Exactly. <laughs> the data you pay for and the processing power you have, basically, in terms of computing. Because you need a lot of computing for this? Yeah. So you, you think about it, the, the finer your cell size, the more data you're processing. Yeah. And that meant it's, I mean, looking at the future, that's something that definitely will go down in price. That is something that will go down in price. And we view that, the Brasa team views that as our, our primary investment is immediately investing in, and we have now invested in a much more powerful computer. So do you want me to jump back into the initial analysis we did? Yeah, okay. yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and to give you a sense of the processing challenges, we were doing this on a couple of laptops and some of the processes ran for 12 plus hours. So again, we were looking at 1.7 million acres, so uh, roughly 700,000 hectares for those not working with acres. And so where we, where we went was we, we did this exclusion and then we were left with largely open space and agricultural lands after we had excluded all those properties. So you can almost imagine it like um, a puzzle. And we started taking out certain puzzle pieces based on how they've been coded on the available data. And, and how much was left just to have an in percentage wise, like it was a 30%, 50, um, 10 so after we ran the next exclusion, we ah, yeah, left. sorry, let's go to the next one. Yeah. So, so we did that. And then by the end of the exclusion process, we were left with about 7% of the area. And so the next exclusion was actually five acres. So two hectares. And that was based on some of the state funding programs for agriculture and some of the preservation opportunities, which require revenue production on a minimum of five acres. So that was, again, it was, it was a site specific criteria that, that's going to vary in other states and other countries. But we felt like five acres was a good minimum parcel size. We didn't want to be thinking about half acre properties. So after we had excluded those land uses and then excluded anything below five acres and then excluded, um, like I said, all bodies of water and actually a buffer around those bodies of water. Because you didn't um, want to get too close. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's something you can code in is that buffer. Then we are left with about 7% of the landscape. And this is all documented. Maybe we can provide a link to the free report that we put out on the TGI website. That would where, be great. Yeah. Where definitely. we go through it step by step and people can follow along that way. So about 7%, which is a lot, actually, if you think about which it. I mean, that's all. Still a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. So, okay. You have 7% left and then you did another analysis, right? And then we did another analysis. So we took what was left and said, okay, this is, it's almost basically coding all the agricultural land with a few exceptions. 
And then what we did is we asked what are criteria within those landscapes that make a property more or less suitable for planting chestnuts. And, and admittedly, this is a, a very initial uh, version of this analysis, you know, and I'll, I'll get into maybe after this, some of what we wanted to push further. But what we looked at was soil characteristics. So for example, chestnuts prefer to grow in sandy, well-drained soils. They also pretty much will only grow in an acidic environment. And then we also looked at the slopes. So here in the Connecticut River Valley, we have some really, I think we have top 20 global agricultural soils in our floodplains. So we have we have these beautiful flat floodplains that have been flooded for thousands of years and have this amazing agricultural soil where asparagus is grown and traditionally tobacco and corn. And those are very flat. And chestnuts actually traditionally have grown in the uplands of our watershed. So the rocky and sandy terrain. And so what we really wanted to look at is kind of the quote unquote subprime agricultural land from, from an annual ag perspective and tillage perspective. Also for costs, I can imagine land costs. Mostly. Exactly. And for costs. So, so we devalued anything below a 5% slope. So anything where the which, slope which was. Which means you had a slope data set. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Is that common? Is that common in, in the US or was it also this, in this case, site specific or region specific? Yeah. So. Here again, and sorry to be so uh, U.S. centric with this, but no, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm I don't know. Yeah. I'm imagining there is a lot of data actually that we don't even know. Maybe cannot yeah. access, or it's in the wrong data set type, etc. But I think there mm -hmm. is a lot, and there will be an amount created with all the new satellites we're constantly launching. Yes, um, yes. that that might not be the biggest issue. Uh, it's much more what do you do with it? But yeah. it's interesting. There's a slope data. Apparently, you can code in more than 5% slope uh, will will trigger something. Yeah, so there's two ways we can look at slope here in Massachusetts and broadly in, in the U.S. So one is that the U.S. Geologic Service, and this is where all of our soil data came from, has conducted a soil survey across the entire country. And so we have polygons, so you can imagine kind of uh, rounded lines that are highlighting different soil types within a landscape. And that exists for the whole U.S. And so we can look at that polygon and that's coded with kind of the, the physical and chemical characteristics. So uh, what granularity you'd expect of the soil, what mix of silt, clay, sand, but also the slopes. So that that's a broad kind of data set that we can use. But then there's also... For example, the entire state of Massachusetts has had what's called a LIDAR survey conducted. And so LIDAR oh, wow, is, yeah. if we, a lot of us know what radar is, which is sound waves, LIDAR is that with a laser. It's something they use in self-driving cars, right? Yes, so, exactly. Yeah, for the, yeah. To basically scan the surrounding mm -hmm. sort of radar. That's why it sounds like radar, but it's slightly different. Yeah. Yep. So it can be either with generally fixed wing drones or planes or helicopters, and you're sending a laser signal at the ground and getting a return. And through that, you can actually map the physical characteristics of the landscape. But you didn't have to do any of that because mm -hmm. it was already done. Exactly. The entire state of Massachusetts has LIDAR surveys conducted for it. So we can actually then take that. So you can imagine kind of this digital uh, topographic model that forms. It's you know like a like a clay diorama that you made in art class, but we just have a digital version of that. And then you can run an analysis in your GIS program to 
calculate the slope in different areas. But you were running that on a laptop, which took yes. a bit of time. Yeah. <laughs> which took a bit of time. But for a small area, it's, it's doable for any mainstream laptop at this point. Wow. Um, it's just when you're trying to do it for a few hundred thousand acres that it becomes a 12-hour process. So you went down that route, basically excluding anything under 5% slope, and you ended up still with a lot of land potentially suitable yep. for chestnuts, right? Yeah. And then the other piece we did is we excluded slopes. I think we went, I think for this analysis, we did over 25% in okay. steepness. Yeah. And that was about mechanization. So That's for the harvesting and, ex- and all of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which there certainly are chestnut orchards as you've probably seen in italy and and i've definitely seen in france that are on steeper slopes than that i'd say they they resemble more kind of old world quote-unquote chestnut forests whereas you know if we're talking about systems that you know potentially are going to have grazers and mobile fencing and we might be running equipment on them you have to have some sensitivity to how steep the slope is going to get just from a safety perspective Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, sure. But maybe, I mean, in the old grown super steep forest the only thing you can i mean you're not going to harvest the chestnuts you're going to send pigs to do that yeah and but it's a different product than the flower you were you were talking about before. <laughs> exactly yeah. equally yeah. good but yeah different. yeah and then here it's also you know that this is these are the nuances that you have to understand in reading the analysis where it's not we're not saying some of these variables exclude the use of that land it's just less ideal Unless for the size production you want to go to. I mean, you were, exactly. you were mentioning not the small forest, but a, a proper proper chestnut production, producing flour, which means you need a lot of chestnuts, you need yes. to mechanize to harvest them and to collect them, dry them, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. And so what we ended up with was about 5%, I believe is the number, is it was like 107, or no, it was about 150,000 acres. So might be misquoting that, but it, it was over 100,000 acres. And that was a range of suitabilities. And again, that's all quoted in the report. And so what we published in terms internally, in terms of our deliverable, just to kind of show us what we were capable of, was that report that showed the entire process. But we also were able to export this color-coded suitability analysis as what's called a KML file, which is the, the native file to Google Earth. And so then we've created a file that we can drop into Google Earth, which is a free program that anyone can download. And someone can zoom around and navigate through their Google Earth landscape and see a color-coded terrain that's coded for for suitability. And we can, you know, this was, again, kind of our minimum viable product that you can click into it and actually get all of the characteristics of that piece of land based on our analysis. Which for our first run, we felt like was a pretty helpful tool. You know, if if I'm having a conversation with a landowner who's looking to sell or, you know, writing up a new lease and trying to understand kind of what other properties might be developed as chestnut projects around that property to kind of create a, a node of production, 
Uh, now we can easily do that in a really easy to navigate Google Earth platform. Because that's what you're using it for like right now um, exactly. after you've done all the analysis. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, so we could pro so that's pr probably a pretty good review of what we started with. You know, the, the other pieces we end up with basically a giant spreadsheet that is coded by piece of land, which allows us to do a whole bunch more analytics, you know, say we wanted to, and, and this is where it started to get exciting is this was really just for me. You know, I just wanted to prove it out. And then as we started going through this process, we saw what we're doing is basically encouraging people to have these conversations at a larger scale, which is where agroforestry and really a lot of these different practices that people are now referring to as regenerative agriculture and just a lot of this way of thinking, it makes a lot more sense if you're thinking at a larger scale than it does at just a parcel scale. Why is that? Because we see a lot of this movement started from permaculture, started from food forest, very small scale. I would almost say between brackets, cute, super yeah. important, very labor intensive, very inspirational, yeah. but not so scalable, or at least we haven't seen it, yeah. uh, or small family farms, et cetera, which is great. But of course, this this audience in on this podcast are mostly impact investors that Normally, when you do an investment, you need something slightly bigger because transaction costs, because a lot of uh, things we have discussed previously in, in other podcasts, fund sizes, et cetera. So why yeah. do you say we need to, I mean, I understand the investment point of view, but why the regenerative sure. act point of view? Why do you need to look a bit like beyond your own farm or beyond your own piece of land? Sure. So, okay. All, all really good questions. And and to be clear, I was, I'm, I'm not actually saying the system shouldn't be implemented at a small level or at a site level. It was more that kind of without the larger analysis, it's hard to, it's hard to see and particularly hard to communicate what this project is participating in. And I'll, I'll say that a little more concretely. So the first piece, and this is where I'm actually getting pushed by some really loving colleagues who are saying, you know, this is a great tool, but I think you can go further with it. So one, one here is that we need to understand what place we're working in and to understand kind of what is unique to that place. And this is where we get into the maybe a little bit less measurable qualities, but to actually understand, you know, what is it for this watershed to function, this specific watershed, the Connecticut River. And what are the underlying processes of this watershed? And on any given farm, what are the series of questions I need to be asking to know that this farm is truly contributing to the regeneration of that place? And so those are all questions. They're not answers or really a prescription, but that's what we were kind of, I would say our team was really starting to see is that we're, we're creating a larger conversation so that those questions actually have a platform to play out and the visual part of your work i can imagine really helps with that it yeah. makes it much easier to discuss you can zoom you can zoom out you can move to different places and this is just on chestnuts yeah obviously there's another 95 percent of the place isn't for chestnuts or not ideal i mean there yeah. are some some extra but it, it already almost facilitates a conversation yeah and even if if we think about kind of the co-evolutionary process occurring in that place, which 
is not necessarily the language that we use a lot <laughs> in, in talking about the world, but it is something, whether we acknowledge it or not, that we're participating in. If you truly believe that evolution is occurring, our decisions are playing a role in that. And so if we think about the Connecticut River watershed, you know, what is the role of elderberry in the co-evolutionary process that's occurring in the Connecticut River watershed? And how do we as humans make intentional decisions to contribute to that role or to, or to, to play our role fully in supporting elderberry and supporting chestnut in supporting corn to play it, to play its role in that place? Again, these are all questions. It's an, I can't, I can't even answer them right now, but what really was provocative about this process was that these questions started to come up. So in, instead of just asking kind of what is the, you know, how many trees can be planted on this piece of land, we started asking, what is this land's role in creating a regenerating watershed? And, and when you say watershed, is that the same as a bioregion? Or is that like, do we them at the same time? Or what's the, the difference there? Good question. It's not. We used bioregional really as a bit of a broader tool term. Actually, our original intention was to work at an even larger scale. And then we were limited on data <laughs> and processing. And so we and actually... Is that the biggest challenge for these kind of work to, okay, we need to look at a bigger scale, but we only have data in this case on the Connecticut watershed? I don't think it is the biggest challenge. I think the biggest challenge is likely our thinking processes and our ability to think concretely at that scale. I actually think the computers are, are more suited to do the, the kind of more generalized analytics at that scale. We just need to buy a few more. But or give Google, Google a call. Yeah. Or give Google a call, exactly. Or uh, I think Microsoft also has some offerings <laughs> that, that could help us out. But, um, but no, I, th I think it actually is more the human capacity piece. What makes you say that? Yeah, yeah what makes me say that? Um, well, one, I'd say personal experience. Um, for me, like seeing my mind's own limits and, and wanting to work at a watershed scale, wanting to understand kind of the value of a single farm to its larger context and feeling kind of the edges of what I'm, I can think about at this, at this time. I even, I right now have an intention that I'm working on for this year to spend more time walking my watershed. So to find some of the small tributaries and just walk them and start to get to know that place more intimately, you know, just, just in the way that I would want to get to know a, a new friend that I'm forming a relationship with that I really should not just rely on um, computing power, but also my own ability to see patterns at work and see the landscape processes. So personal experience. And also kind of our work with both companies and landowners and this, this continual push we hear kind of intellectually to simplify and to say, okay, I get that we need to do this bigger piece of work, but what's the really simple story? And in, in TGI's work, we tend to feel like that urge to simplify has actually created a lot of the challenges that we're now facing. And so we, we try and work to actually get people to expand their thinking. And that doesn't mean there isn't distillation, but kind of keeping people away from that simplification. 
it's, it's not a simple story. Yeah, it's not a simple one. And, and if you're looking at, at the project now, and for instance, if we will do this call, it's now March 2019, I mean, a year from now, what, what would have changed? Where would you like to be? Apart from that, you would like to have walked a few pieces of the watershed, of your watershed, yeah. um, river system. What, what in terms of, of Braza would you, would you like to be able to report on, for instance, uh, in March 2020? Mm-hmm. Great. And, and just actually quickly before answering that, there was, there was just one other piece I wanted to say, which was, so I kind of went at the like intellectual version of why think larger. There's also really concrete and practical reasons to think larger. So for example, there's all sorts of funding like the National Resource Conservation Service here in the US that's putting millions of dollars towards cost sharing for certain practices that includes agroforestry. Or you even have projects like Project Drawdown, which did its analysis at a global level, but that all of the solutions that Drawdown mapped were at a global level. And if, for example, I wanted to start an initiative to do bioregional drawdown, that analysis in most regions or in most watersheds hasn't been done for what are the solutions that are most potent in my place with regard what's to carbon. The optimal, yeah, what's the optimal right. potential of, of drawdown? Yeah. There you need to think at scale, obviously. Yep. And, and then you have these, these NRCS programs that tend to operate farm by farm. You know, you, farmers get a consultation, technical support consultation, and then get a set of practices that there's, it's suggested they can operate. But what if we took that same funding pool and we did a bioregional drawdown analysis and we took even the specific funding pools around greenhouse gas emissions and said, okay, we did a BRASA for these four crops that have an existing market in the region. And here's the acreage where we could most potently implement silvopasture or tree intercropping in this watershed. And here are the crops and here's the funding pool. And you start, uh, for me, that's a really exciting organizational concept or organizing concept that I haven't really seen play out, at least in the U.S., in any of the conversations I'm a part of. You know, or you look at California, for example, where you have all sorts of water issues. You have, you know, floodplains that have been totally stripped of their vegetation and at the same time, an inability to hold water in the landscape and billions of dollars being spent on aqueducts. And there's a whole conversation to be had about what's the analysis we could do to plan out the suitable, the appropriate revegetation of certain agricultural landscapes with perennial species that have marketability, that are increasing water infiltration and the water holding capacity of that landscape, and that are using funding streams to create literally <laughs> solutions that will be ongoingly regenerated rather than built infrastructure that will be decaying over time and depreciating in value. And, and needs more maintenance. Yeah. And I think you touched upon another, I mean, you mentioned market a few times. You need a certain scale and appropriate, mm-hmm. obviously, but to be able to sell chestnut flour or to be able to sell certain types of product that come out of these systems, unless you're just selling it just between brackets because it's not easy. Uh, selling it directly at a farm stand, et cetera. But if you need, you need a certain scale to go beyond that and, and approach certain 
uh, producers, suppliers, uh, buyers, etc. They need certain quality standards. They need certain size. Otherwise, you're, you're immediately out of that market, and you need to yep. to basically sell yourself directly. Yeah, yeah. So even you know when you're looking at a crop like chestnuts, to be able to say, is there enough suitable land in this region to establish a market? you know, is, is, is kind of like a key underlying question. Is it even possible? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't know that that was actually possible to answer that question specific to the Connecticut River watershed until we did this analysis. And what's the answer? Yes. Yes. Without a doubt. <laughs> and is that something a year from now to come back to that question you would yeah. like to have? Because it's a long-term project, obviously, because as all trees, they take time. Yeah. And they take time to to grow. And, and before you can harvest anything, you said five to 10 years. And f- also from an investor perspective, whoever puts the funding in, if it's the government, if it's investors, et cetera, you would like to know that that at least the trees are planted in the, the most, the best place or the best potential place for them to grow, apart yeah. from all the maintenance you do, the, the prepping of the soil, the prepping of the right trees, et cetera. You also like to know that you pick the right spot because mm-hmm. they don't have, they don't have legs; they cannot walk. Yeah, um, so you're kind so, of bound to that location for the next thirty years. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to visit property tomorrow that potentially will be a twenty-five year lease. So, <laughs> is which a, in chestnut life is still very very brief because very we've brief. seen examples of thousands. But yeah, yeah, it's it's for any investor, it's extremely long. Yeah. yeah. So so what's the yeah? So I have a pretty clear answer to that question. What do I want to see in a year? So um, we have a number of conversations moving right now with different folks who want to hire us to do a BRASA analysis, which really means customizing to the set of questions that they need help answering. So some of this is looking at oak, um, adaptive oak corridors in California to basically preempt the climate adaptive migration of different oak species. We have some work looking at kind of oak silvopasture, which will kind of looking at like a planned dehesa in California, which overlaps with the oak corridors. And then we have some work in the Northeast looking at different forest farming practices like ginseng production. And some also some work, actually, we've been talking with the Propagate team about helping them to basically create a bigger conversation for them to engage investors on. You know, if they're going to establish a fund around hazelnuts in a certain watershed to be able to articulate the specific acreage in that watershed that's viable for this fund. So, so we're actually looking at hazelnuts and chestnuts with them in some other parts of the Northeast. And so I, by the end of the year or in the next 12 months, I would love to have completed at least three analyses of different crops and in different areas for, for other stakeholders. I, I just think that'll be a, a really good test, a pretty big chunk of work. And the other piece that I really want to bring in, and this gets to the, what I was saying about kind of growing the, the thinking in that, in that place. And this is kind of getting beyond just the data analytics, which is helpful framing, but I think it's incomplete on its own is we've been talking with the Regenesis group, mostly out of New Mexico and Arizona, who's their close colleagues. I think we kind of see them almost as like a aunts and uncles of our work in the Regenesis in regenerative design and they they work with the story of place process and so we we've, we've been talking to them about in some of these larger regional engagements for us to collaborate with them to run a story of place process which is a process um, it's research intensive it's community and stakeholder engagement intensive 
and it's a and it's about coming to understand what is unique to that place so that we that can actually be our starting point for design work and for and for planning and development work and on top of identifying that that what is unique piece it's also about kind of catalyzing a developmental process so a process by which people in that place and people working in that place are continually developing their understanding of how they can be contributing to that place's uniqueness and to the expression of that unique aspect of that place. Because otherwise it can be quite overwhelming, obviously. You start saying, we need to work on a watershed level, we need to think big, and yeah. but then bring it down again to, okay, what can I do? How can I regenerate part of, yeah. a small part of, a very small part of a fraction of this much bigger, bigger story? Yeah, and what I found really energizing about that work with them is this sounds like a really big concept and it sounds a little abstract initially, but it's actually very concrete. And when, when you start to talk with folks who've lived in a place for a while, you, you find that we all experience what's unique about a watershed or a place or a region. You know, once you've identified what that place is, uh, we just haven't articulated it often. Um, and so this process of articulating it and continuing to work on that is really exciting to me and, and a necessary kind of foundational piece to the Brasa work. And I think we it's absolutely essential because otherwise we, we need to know what questions to ask these amazing data sets and computers and visualization tools because otherwise they're not going to give us anything useful. I mean, if we don't know what questions to ask and how to ask that and what are uniquenesses we would like to search for, then this information is, is just a big data, just a big spreadsheet. Exactly, yeah. And a final question, because I want to be conscious of your time. Imagine there's a room full of, of smart impact investors listening to, to this podcast that are ready to invest in soil. They've read the books, they're interested. What would you tell them, obviously without giving investment advice, but what would you, from a watershed perspective, what would be your advice to, to look out for, where to learn, where to, to, to look at more, in this case, watershed level agroforestry systems? Yeah. So th this question actually came from Ben Haggard, my conversation with Ben Haggard at the Regenesis Group. And I've, I, I kind of come back to it as a bit of a North Star, which is, which is the question, what are you regenerating? Or what are you investing in regenerating? And to me, that's really a powerful question for impact investors to be considering when we, when we start talking about regenerative agriculture. You know, it's, it's this term has come to mean so many different things to so many different people. And at the core, if something is truly regenerative, then you should be able to talk about what is being regenerated. And that to me is the really, is a kind of underlying question. And from there, a lot, a lot can come from that. But even just starting by identifying the whole system that you are claiming to be regenerating or investing in the regeneration of. And then from there, you can start to ask, okay, what, what is that place and what are its needs? And how can you increase the working of that place? How can you make it more vital or increase the vitality of that place? Again, it sounds abstract, but it's, it's the kind of question that's actually really concrete when we take the time to think about the place we're working or the system we're engaging. Um, so that's where I would start with a group of investors is, is what are you regenerating? Um, or what are you investing in the regeneration of? And from there, there's a bunch of specific questions about the answer. If they're working in Northern Italy versus in the Amazon, 
there's a, a very different approach and set of engagements. And, you know, maybe 10 questions down the line, I'd say, huh, it seems like we can help you with Brasa. Or I might say, you don't need us at all. I'm not going to take your money. <laughs> or I'll take your money, but you don't need us. <laughs> <laughs> and if you could change one thing overnight in, like, if you can ma- wave your magic wand and change one thing overnight in the region egg or in the agriculture or land use space, what would that be? Would it be unlimited computer power? Would it be better questions? What, what would you change overnight if you had the yeah. power? Okay, here's what I, I've been thinking on, and it, it relates to a few conversations recently. Is it's I'm noticing that there is a tendency to want to be able to call yourself regenerative, and I think it would be way more valuable to the planet if people wanted to be creating regeneration. And I, I think that's meaningfully different. Is is worrying about can I call myself regenerative is not pointing your focus or your thinking or your goals actually at creating effects on the planet, at actually creating change. It's it's about your reputation and what people are calling you. And so I would love to see a change where people are more focused on asking the question, am I creating regeneration or am I contributing to regeneration rather than am I regenerative? So that's what I've been thinking about recently. That, that I think if we can switch to asking that question, I think people are going to do a lot better work. And I, that's true of me too. That's a piece of work I'm doing on myself. So I, I am far from perfect. It's a journey. <laughs> it is a journey. A long one, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Russell. I will definitely be checking in with you next year to see where, where you're at in, in terms of these big and amazing projects. And thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for sharing your your journey. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. This was a fun conversation. You just listened to an interview which hopefully triggered you to think bigger. Bigger at a watershed or even by a regional level. If you had a supercomputer able to answer the question, what to plan, where and why, what would you ask it? If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.